Welcome back to another episode of the Nomad Barista podcast. I'm your host, Brody Vissers, and I seek out coffee professionals, coffeepreneurs around the world who have really paved their own path, nailed their niche, and designed their own lifestyle around what they love. Today, I'm revisiting an older conversation that I recorded for YouTube back in 2021 with Maxwell Colonna Dashwood. Some of you had the chance to watch slash listen to it over on my channel, but I thought why not let it live in the audio space here as Maxwell offers so many great insights as a coffeepreneur, including his roastery and cafes in Bath, England and World Barista Championship competitor experience on multiple occasions. Maxwell is also the author of several books, including The Coffee Dictionary back in 2017, Water for Coffee in 2015, which he co-authored with Dr. Christopher H. Hendon of MIT, and most recently in the later half of 2023, The Business of Specialty Coffee, which I'm sure a lot of you would find most useful. So go check that out if you haven't. I'll leave a link in the description. I do hope the rest of this chat isn't too dated as things change very fast here in the coffee industry. But before we jump into it, this episode is brought to you by Wakako, portable coffee makers. And a few of their brewers, which I find quite pertinent to this conversation with Maxwell, are the capsule compatible mini presso and nano presso. I'm frequently using the new mini presso NS2 on my travels when a quick compostable specialty capsule is all I have room for in my carry on. Check out more of Wakako in the description. And now I bring you the renowned Maxwell Colonna Dashwood. You know, I think uh, phases in my coffee career, I've been in coffee about 15 years. Um, you do some really cool stuff and you 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 wonder, um, you're like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe that's some of the interesting stuff. Will it will it be less interesting? And it just keeps getting more and more yeah. interesting. At least for me, I, I think there's so many different, not just from a coffee professional point of view, but from a customer point of view, I was doing a project recently and we were talking about who is the coffee customer, right? And there's just so many different reasons people are into coffee. It's so multifaceted. And I think from a like a, a passion or interest point of view, that's why it gives so much. Uh, you know, uh, I feel like I'm focusing more on like the mechanisms of the industry now more than when I got into it. And I was focusing more on like, how do I just make a good <laughs> cup of coffee? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all linked, right? Like, uh, you know, that's still like paramount to specialty. I mean, I would argue what specialty's done very well is figured out how to find and make good coffee. Uh, and I think that's a claim that it can hold up high and be proud of. I think a lot of its other claims about uh, what it's done, secondary claims maybe around sustainability, I think, uh, or sourcing or transparency or I think those are pretty dubious uh, and I think it's actually time that we are more critical of what we've actually achieved there and talk about how we can do more because uh, I think actually bigger companies uh, that we easily just sort of say, you know, it's easy to not even look at and just assume they're worse uh, are better at those parts of the industry. Yeah, I think it's very pertinent right now because we are, I feel like we are going through a little bit of a transition. You must have seen so many changes over those, you said 15, 15 years. And it's like where we are now is so different than where we were 15 years ago. But I agree. I think even this conversation around the transparency, around the sustainability, but also, you know, what are we doing as let's say coffee business owners, especially roasters, importers, what are we doing with the farms? And I think that story has been told uh, a lot through the, through the lens of 
oh, we're going down there, we're buying coffee from them, we're paying a better price, we're taking some pictures. And this is something that I had to personally think a lot about, not because I'm a buyer, but because I did a lot of photography and video and journalism on the farm level. And so I would go down and I would meet with the farmers and I would talk with them and make videos. But after a while, I start to, started to think like, okay, maybe there's, there's a point where we can start to normalize or at least attempt to normalize their working day in the same respect as our working day. Like we are partners, we don't have to view them as kind of like this world, world vision uh, perspective all the time that we are the, the saviors going down and taking a few pictures and buying a, a 60, 60 kilo bag, bringing it back and thinking that we've you know, changed the world. And I think it's empowering, right? It all depends how you look at it. But like the white savior vibe uh, or the Indiana Jones vibe of going and finding a great coffee that the, the farmer didn't even know was good. You're like, oh, come on. Like, I mean, there's examples. I get it, right? Um, and there's some positives to that, which is, you know, going and, yeah, of course, for a farmer, for a farmer, basically, or any producer of any product to meet more of its clients and understand its market is valuable, right? But, um, yeah, that, for me, it, like, what what comes across is, like, you know, considerate and want to give help and it is also in danger of being very disrespectful to yeah. that producer or... You know, I, I, st I had a call recently when someone said you should stop using the word producer when you mean farmer and farmer when you mean producer. So, like, mm. her point was a producer is a wealthy business and uh, a farmer is, 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 you know, could be or could not be. So it's sort of she was making that distinction that a producer is a, is a, is a business making a product and a farmer is a subsistence farmer, basically. Okay. And, and it's a good conversation to have, basically, by saying that, you know, we tell one story about who the producers especially coffee are and it's not accurate right the story we tell customers like i think it gets more complex than this okay so i speak to a farm in brazil and they do some great stuff and they honestly have a more developed business than i do right they've, they've got like an amazing sustainability board they've done several certifications and i speak to them and i can learn from them about how to run a better business here. And I often say to people I work with, like, really, we're just SMEs working with SMEs, um, for people listening, small small to medium enterprises. Mm -hmm. And uh, this story that we're in control and we buy from a helpless farmer is just false. Uh, <laughs> it's not that useful, I don't think. Uh, it, maybe it's useful in, in somewhere like a corrupt supply chain in Kenya, right, where the person who's, who picks their cherries on their two hectares of land and delivers it to a mill and the, the whole supply chain's corrupt. And they probably are, you know, in many ways you could say that position's quite helpless and needs some intervention. So it's just context is everything, right? And I think for me and at least at our coffee roastery, we're trying to understand each origin as its own place and think yeah. about buying coffee from each origin as diff different challenges in different countries. Yeah, But all I would say quickly about the roaster end is I, you know, most of the roasters that are of any size, their house coffees and their core coffees are large lot coffees. So it's not the story of a two hectare producer. Yeah, But they don't tell that story of the larger operators, right? I think we, we had, a, had this conversation or at least spoke to it uh, in the past about how there's a little bit of a trend now for particularly smaller roasters maybe who choose not to support 
the bigger, let's say, producers or coffee farmers because now they're too big. You know, let's let's only buy coffee from those who are maybe you know could we could say marginalized or we could say you know at least in in impoverished. And I think that's that has a lot of place in our industry as well. But I think to divide it to divide it that way, saying okay, we don't want to support those who have done a great job. Maybe it can be a little bit uh, counter, you know, counter the the prerogative. Well, I mean, it's the is it potentially another another version? I guess, yeah, it's it's hard. There's different um, considerations here. Like, you know, you could say, okay, that well-known farmer is going to get uh, they're going to sell their coffee. They've got a, a brand now. They've got customers out there, so. If as a roastery you want to support less well-known and you want to champion less well-known producers, fine. I mean, I think that's a really great uh, vision. I, I just want to see people committing to their vision because <laughs> that's one of my bugbears is that there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in coffee, like a lot of contradictions. Mm -hmm. so we sit in a conversation, we talk about our values, and then do we really believe we can sit and analyze our, our, our behavior in our businesses in the cold light of day and say we actually do all of that and are we committed to it? Because... It nearly always means something difficult for the roaster, right? So like, mm -hmm. okay, we have less choice of coffees to buy from. There's yeah. potentially more quality risk. You know, and there are roasters out there doing that, owning that piece. But I also see a lot of roasters telling a story of sustainability or transparency or um, paying more. And really, they just want to be able to buy a spot coffee and have none of the risk. And so and I think that's, if you come back to talking about my YouTube channel, yeah one of my videos early that I still, I want to revisit actually, it's, uh, it's just very pertinent, is if there is no verification or no auditing of any kind, like there's no way to identify the difference between a company that's owning it, living it, and a company that's just sticking it on their packet, right? Well, we'll get into that more maybe. Um, <laughs> this is a, this can, I'm sure this can be a rabbit hole that we would lo both love to go down. On a, on a lighter note, I'd love to, to start off a little bit about you, a little bit more personal, your coffee journey, how you got into coffee, what, you know, what drove that passion for you to get into coffee, and then subsequently, obviously, uh, opening Kelowna Coffee, and then all the other projects that you've been working on, we can, we can dive into a little bit. But maybe just quickly, you, know, you getting into coffee, and then how that led to opening your own roastery. Uh, every time I tell this story, I try to think of if I could maybe keep it a bit shorter. We'll see how long. Oh, good. All right, all right. Well, it's a it's a winding road, right? Like it was never, you know. I'm, I, I think I, for for the pros and cons, I'm a typical sort of curious entrepreneur sort of type. You know, there was no sort of long plan. There was like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's valuable in a in a in a really interesting way. Let's explore it and quite opportunistic. And although to give myself and the people I work with credit, like everything we've done, a lot of thought goes into why you would do it. Um, and it all kind of makes sense together. It's all coffee. Uh, but anyway, we'll go back to the beginning. So I come from an art sort of background. My father's a sculptor. Um, my first real vocation, I guess, was portraiture. Um, I specifically chose not to go to university. Uh, I was doing art at the time, and I didn't really understand the, the many virtues of an art degree. I still don't really understand them. Um, and I went traveling. I did a lot of traveling. I got a bunch of different jobs. I worked in a petrol station to save up to go traveling for nine months. I worked on vineyards in New Zealand and 
Yeah, I didn't really have any like um, particular immediate career ambitions. I was exploring the things I like doing, seeing the world. And um, those jobs, which were simply to, 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 to earn a bit of money to do whatever the project was, I, I really enjoyed them. Like I, I really liked the petrol station job. Although I later realized it was probably because it was a, like a local community petrol station. When I had to go and do a shift on the motorway, it was horrible. <laughs> no one's friendly on the motorway. Everyone's just angry. Um, anyway, I really loved these jobs. And uh, I came back. I was working in a bar. And I was doing portraiture and other artwork. I got quite busy with the artwork. And I guess it was my first sort of uh, experience of running your own business, really. You know, you're like a, a one-person band and you're, um, you're, you're, you're managing that. And it's quite, yeah, portraiture is quite, uh, it sells itself in a way. Like, as far as art goes, people get likenesses of other people, right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, I got so busy, I had to give up the hospitality, which, you know, I know for a lot of people who do hospitality as a side job is the dream, right? But I was... I was sat doing all this artwork and I was like, I don't like this. Like, you know, I now realize I'm, you know, I really like people. I'm gregarious and extrovert, but it wasn't just that. I didn't just like the hospitality because I like people. They're just really interesting environments. Like it's a, you know, every customer that comes through the door is different. They, they engage with the space and the staff and the products. I just found it way more interesting than the artwork. Um, and I think my dad's only just forgiven me that I decided to not do pursue art fine art in any way and oh, wow. um yeah i met my wife leslie whilst i was working in this bar in the new forest which is a southern part of england and we said okay let's do some more traveling um and i'd already i'd already used my new zealand work visa so we had an australian work visa and we basically used the artwork to save up some money and we did six months in india which was you know full on um and then ended up in australia with a work visa in melbourne and yeah, you look at it now like, oh, well, you went to Melbourne to do coffee. I was like, no, just <laughs> turned up there and uh, 2006 and basically just got a job in the CBD in the middle of the uh, city. And it wasn't, you know, it was a conference center cafe, opened late on the weekends and had some wine, like a wine bar. And just very quickly, you couldn't be involved in hospitality in Melbourne and not um, be aware of like this the 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 requirement people had around coffee like the people talk about who made the best coffee where the best coffee was and even in this bar which was not a specialty coffee shop at all there was an expectation you could do latte art and i was like this is this latte art thing is really hard oh wow. I, remember, I remember as an artist thinking i should be able to do this yeah and i found it really frustrating for the first like four or five months but um yeah i i was fascinated by people's obsession with it but i also found it really interesting that i don't know if you thought about this i've done lots of i've done some mundane jobs like cutting vines is mundane picking kiwi flowers is really mundane and then you have some jobs which there's something about them where the day just flies by and it was enjoyable and i found coffee making like that right and i was like that's interesting and I just started to dig a bit. And one of the regulars at this cafe said, oh, you should go up the road on your lunch break to a place called Brother Baba Boudin on a, a street called Little Burke Street. And I went up there and didn't really have any naming on the front. It was clearly very cool and hip. Uh, and I went in and there was actually this woman serving, uh, who was super friendly. And 
I asked for espresso and it was the first time anyone had said to me, well, we've got this espresso from a specific place that tastes a specific way. And I remember I've been trying to get into whiskey for a while and I just found it hard to <laughs> taste. Because it's yeah. just like fire. Um, I'm actually a bit better at whiskey tasting now. But anyway, okay. I, I, think, I think I assumed that I wouldn't get what she was talking about, that it would just taste like coffee to me, right? And I stood outside on the pavement. I had this drink. And honestly, it was like, like a life-altering experience. <laughs> I, it just, I was like, well, hang on a minute. Why have I had to travel around the world, get a job, then be given the advice to go down a side alley to find this uh, cafe to, be, to, to drink something that tastes like this? And why does it taste like this? And your brain starts going, how much of it is the way it was made, the roaster, the origin, all of the questions. And yeah, I immediately decided there on that sidewalk, I was going to change jobs. So I went to find a job as a full-time barista. Um, and it's just, the, just that was the beginning of the rabbit hole, right? And I, uh, Leslie, my wife, was working in an office down the road and then in the CBD as well. It was quite cool. We had our weekends off. We'd go visit roasteries. We'd just soak it all up. And I started going on courses. Um, as you could probably tell by my character type, I was quite critical of those courses. <laughs> so... Just, you know, quite, I just ask a lot of questions. That thing I think that you're not supposed to do as a kid when it served me quite well as an adult, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Be like, why? Why? <laughs> just because. Um, so I was literally trying to make coffee, going on these courses and being taught 25 mil, 25 seconds. I was like, it just doesn't work, though. This doesn't work. It's clearly more complex than that. And then some, I became aware of barista competitions and somebody said, oh, you should go and train with David Makin, who was the Australian barista champion at the time. And he offered these courses one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and I think I was only supposed to be an hour. And three hours later, he was like, I think we're, I'm going to have to go. Uh, and he was super nice. He dropped me and Leslie, my wife, back to our apartment. And that was the turning point for me. He was honest. He had a whiteboard. And every time... There was a question of why and he didn't know he said i don't think anyone in coffee knows we just or it's more complex or we've learned this or we still need to learn more or research this and i became aware coffee was at this interesting moment in time and if i look back you know definitely i got into it at an interesting time and it's still interesting uh, obviously probably more so you know i mean i came back to the uk we started an events business we served coffee at music festivals and um shows and it was pretty niche then like pretty cool uh, almost like sort of an indie music scene or something. Uh, and it was funny because I was always interested in, I thought like, I was so passionate about hospitality. I didn't think anyone was doing a very good job of engaging people in the story of coffee. Like it was, if you knew, you knew. And um, it was super sort of niche and underground counterculture. And I was like, look, this is, I think you could create an environment where your sole goal is to communicate about coffee, which a cafe doesn't do a very good job of. A cafe is doing loads of other stuff. And this is, was always the friction with specialty mm -hmm. coffee and cafes, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, you've you got to serve a bunch of different drinks, different customer types. And I was like, let's, you know, let's do something focusing just on great coffee and be sort of unapologetic about it. And for me, the challenge from a hospitality point of view there was, how can you understand people and environment to do that? So don't just put, don't just restrict the menu and put good coffee on and force people to do something. That's part, there are parts of it, like the way you design your shop and the way you design your menu and the way you speak to people. You know, we still do that today. Like, you know, when someone comes in and they ask for 
a drink that we don't recommend, you know, you always start with a positive. No, you, but right. So like, it's like lessons in how to talk to people. Um, and when I hire people, we're recently hiring. I sort of, I think that's the difference. Most people get given a hospitality job. They get no training in how to speak. It's just like, yeah, you've got to make that. That's how the till works. Off you go. So it's like, okay, someone comes in and asks for something that you don't recommend because of what you're trying to do. And you say, well, of course you can have it. But what we would say is, and, and you would do, there's little things, right? So if I say to you, we're different, we're doing this, straight away, it's not you, it's us. If I then explain how what we do is based on customer experience, which it is, right? Like the whole sugar thing is because in the early days, this sort of bright, sweet specialty espresso, you put sugar in it, it tastes like lemon. Mm-hmm. And it was a customer coming to me, this is like 12 years ago. And I said, oh, try it without the sugar. And they did. And they said, oh, so you know it goes sour with the sugar in. And I was like, well, yeah. And they said, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> and I remember being like, that's a fair point. So I think a lot of people look at some of what we've done of like recommending filters without milk or espresso without sugar. And they think it's just like this purist anti-customer approach, but it's the opposite. It's going, okay, if we're really committed to presenting coffee in this way, let's frame it properly. Let's consider customer's experience. And yeah. obviously I think if you do that, it's hard. And the, the early days were really hard. People were like, it's just coffee. What are you on about? Um, but you then build a reputation and you're committed to the vision. Uh, just, just to be clear, right? I wasn't, I didn't give you a great idea of the events business was definitely not the place to tell the story of amazing coffee. Yeah. Week to right. Yeah. People in a field at a music festival off their face on whatever drugs, like you get the odd person who's into it, but it was fun and it was an interesting experience, but we knew we needed to create a destination. Yeah. Which is when we moved to Bath, we're not from there. We looked around the UK uh, and we thought it made a lot of sense. I, I look back now and pretend that I chose it because, you know, I realized the demographic and the local economy and <laughs> but really we just like, it just felt good. <laughs> yeah. Um, intuition. Yeah. Intuition. And, um, so yeah, then, then we opened the shop and then the cool thing, and I still believe this to this day is if you do something interesting, you, you interesting people will come to you or you'll find other interesting people. And mm. it's like a magnet approach so build it and they will come. Right. Uh, and that's the benefit. Like if I, start a project which is harder to get going in the short term it potentially yeah. if you're if you've got a strong vision like three four years down the line you build a reputation you build a tribe you build an audience a word of mouth so that started to happen and then i started taking part in barista competitions because you know a lot of the most interesting experiences i'd had as a barista were around people who have been in barista comps like david bacon back in australia easily the best person i'd spoken to about coffee theory barista champion I went to the World Championships 2010 in London. And really, just to sum it up now, historically, 2009 to 2015, we had the one shop in Bath. And really, it was, we created that shop for us, right? Like, we want to explore coffee. Um, We believed that people would jibe with that and there'd be a customer base for it. And a lot of that time was spent doing research, doing... um, yeah, you have to apologize. I apologize for the dog noises. Um, <laughs> need a carpet or something for the next, <laughs> next interview. So okay. good. But basically, um, we did, you know, that shop, you know, professors from the university would come in, 
people from the coffee world would come in. People from I've met all sorts of people. Today. I love hospitality for that. Um, you can meet. You never know who you're talking to, and you learn from all sorts of people. You don't just learn from you know some person with an incredibly successful career in their industry. You learn from. It's just amazing. I love it. Actually, it's something I miss a bit is I don't. I rarely work in that kind of environment now. I spend far too much time on emails. Yeah, um, <laughs> but we did the water research. Chris was a customer. I was using the barista comps as a platform for these ideas and stuff. And that's actually what frustrated me is I didn't think it was the best platform for that. I would end up using it as a platform knowing it was going to be harder to score points. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, yeah. But then that became the published book, Water for Coffee. And then we did the frozen research paper on that was published in the subgenre of nature. And, you know, I never thought I'd do co-authored published papers. I liked science at school, but again, I just found a new passion for it and i realized that me personally sort of what i've done a lot in coffee is a lot of collaboration i like collaborating i like joining the dots with different people with different backgrounds different skills um and we did like four academic papers in total did that book i wrote another book called the coffee dictionary um the main publisher so this time was very much like about about i was going traveling around to all the coffee shows giving talks you know it, it was from a business point of view it was really just the shop um, and then 2015, I, I stopped doing Brister comps. I'm not, don't really feel like I'm getting enough back in return for the, what goes into doing them anymore. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like I've done very well for, out of them. And a lot of that energy that was going into Brister comps, I started to put into business projects. Mm -hmm. in the roastery that came about because so, so I don't really like, I'm not re I'm kind of as a person, I'm driven by seeing a challenge or something that could be improved or done differently in an industry, not just, uh, you know, a lifestyle business or, 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 or going, oh, okay, I like the way that's done. I'm going to start a business like that. Now, just to be clear, I think that's great too, right? You go, okay, I want to, I, no, I really want to open a little cafe and roastery. Uh, and that's, I want it to be a defined little project. That's awesome too. So I just, for me as a person, I get excited by those, um, you know, the challenging things, which is probably, you know, comes back to bite more. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a place for so many different types of people in, in any industry, but it's specifically in the coffee industry. And I think that's what makes it so unique and so diverse and, and, and a magnet, as you mentioned, it was just, it was one of those things that just drew you in. And I love the point that you said about how, I, I think it's really interesting the way you put it, like you had to travel around the whole entire world, you know, work at this one place, be told to go down the, the street, down this back alley to find such an amazing experience that is, that shouldn't be such a secret, but at the time, you know, it was a lot harder to come by, I guess. And having that life-changing moment with a, with a good coffee. And I think a lot of us working in the industry had that sort of tipping point or life-changing moment. I, I know I did. I know the very cup of coffee that made me decide I'm gonna do a deep dive. Uh, I didn't know where it was going to lead. Um, and it's funny, also, I was in the similar position of being that artist working in hospitality on the side, being a photographer and kind of being a journalist and then wanting to be in coffee as well. And I've also made the flip into like, okay, I'm going to put photography a little bit on the side, still use it as a tool, but I want to dive deep into coffee, even though I know maybe for the time being wouldn't be as lucrative as maybe staying with the the artistry are in, in your case with the, you know, the portraiture and like the, you know, the drawings and the paintings. It's interesting because I think, you know, I definitely think, um, I use 
the creativity in coffee. Uh, yeah. And that's sort of what you're saying. You're, you, you're going, like, how do I apply sort of what you do and where yeah, the way you work and where you, how do I apply it to coffee, right? Um, but yeah, so then, so then the roastery idea was, uh, the reason I sort of gave that preamble about not copying is I'd worked with a bunch of great roasters. We were a multi-roaster cafe for the first several years. I'd worked with roasters on world championship coffees. And, you know, they, they were great. And I, I, you know, I always try and study and learn as much as I can about something before doing it myself. And when I want to do mm. it myself is when I feel like I can't explore it further in other people's businesses. Mm. So my frustration in 2015 was I was looking at the roasters and I'm like, okay, in the UK, everybody's model really, bar a few exceptions, is wholesale coffee. So most of the specialty coffee movement is cafes and wholesale supply, the history over the last 20 years. Maybe a bit different in a few different countries. America's a bit different, but generally, that's the scene, right? Cafe workers, hospitality workers supplying coffee to those businesses. The problem there is the reality of those businesses is for the bulk of what they sell with coffee, they need, they can't pay that much, right? So at the time you were seeing some super rare coffees in comp, but even that was difficult. I mean, a lot changed. It's not just money, obviously communication, like the comms now between producers and farmers and roasters and baristas via Facebook and Instagram and shows is crazy different to when I started. When I started, yeah. it was such a divide between production and consumption. So that's a huge leap forward that how much that's changed, right? But um, my general point was I was looking at it going, okay, we sold this water book around the world, like a lot of copies for a 30 pound textbook. Um, and we've realized with Cloner and Smalls that, you know, your what you do is defined by your audience. If you can't find your customer, you can't sell your product, right? So with expensive, interesting coffee, like the end consumer, the coffee geek around the world who wants to buy a rare coffee for themselves, well, they're, they're making the decision about what they would like to drink. The cafe owner isn't making that decision. They're doing this really weird, complex decision of, okay, we've got some customers, lots of customers who have it with milk. We've got loads of customers uh, who, you know, some coffee geeks, most aren't. Um, you know, it's hard to make profit from a cafe. We've got, we don't feel we can charge more. This is a di different topic, but we don't feel we can charge more than three pounds a cup. Um, there's, a, there's a load of things going on there. And then they end up at a price per kilo where really, most of the coffee scene was based around Colombia, Brazil, a few other origins for the bulk of the coffee. I mean, you've got little micro lots that pop up in comp or on the brew bar, but like, you know, the bulk of it is those coffees. Yeah. And I was interested in that because, you know, whoever your customers are today dictate what you do tomorrow because they become your most important customers. So <laughs> if 80 or 90% of your coffee is commercially tight that becomes your focus as a business whether you like it or not right like it's your responsibility to look after those customers once you've built that so i was like okay well maybe we will not focus on that at all not focus on wholesale at all focus on e-commerce but like the coffee community and focus on always having some rare interesting coffees available because at the time you just saw them once or twice a year because i always thought that frequency thing is a thing right like yeah, you, we've all been. We had that. We had this little cafe in Bath, really cool little cafe where we lived, and the dude just opened it whenever he wanted, right? Right. And that means that you turn up on a Wednesday. Oh, closed today. 
And before you know it, you're not willing to take the chance on it anymore, right? No, for sure. And I think it's similar with like rare coffees, right? Which is, it's like, oh, I had this rare coffee once at Pomp, but, and if you have, if you buy a hundred kilos and you stick it online once, like I wanted to be somewhere where customers knew if they were into these kind of competition winning coffees, they could always get them from us. So that was 2015, uh, started roasting downstairs in the shop, got dobbed in, I don't know if everyone knows that term. <laughs> Maybe you should explain it. Uh, basically, the neighbors told the council that we were roasting in, and we're not allowed to roast in that. I see. Yeah. It's a negative thing. <laughs> it's for us like, negative you know, thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like telling on your friend or something to the teacher, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, moved to a, a small roastery in Corsham. Uh, you know, then, then we moved to the bigger roastery, like 20, I think, been there about four years, 2017. But I think, you know, we've done all the other innovation. I became fascinated by capsules. I think uh, Nespresso does, has done a better job at branding to the premium luxury customer type than any other coffee brand. I think a lot of specialty has a bit of, I wouldn't call it an identity crisis, but there's a bit of conflict there between, you know, you see it quite a lot with, oh, we want to reward farmers for the best coffee. We think premiums for great coffee are good. Oh, hang on a minute. We don't want to charge people more than three pound a cup. Like it's a conflict, right? Like yeah, in, in ha having a sort of a branding and a vision, which is like independent local craft, is not necessarily the same as premium luxury boutique. Uh, and I just saw special Nespresso. I was like, hang on a minute. They've done a great job at premium luxury boutique, which sounds weird. People are like, what do you mean Nespresso boutique? I mean, go to one of their... Yes, the stores. Right? Like, uh, somebody said that if they were in Silicon Valley, you'd be talking about Nespresso as an apple, right? But they're in Switzerland. so <laughs> And they're owned by Nestle, so it's less glamorous, right? But yeah, I became obsessed with that. That was really interesting to me. Um, and then obviously the water thing, you know, that idea that you could make a, you know, a lot of the innovation I've been involved in isn't about like some fundamental new approach, right? It's often about seeing that there's something over here and it hasn't been applied over here, but it really should be. Uh, so it's like utilizing other formats and things like that. So yeah, and the roastery has been going um, since 2015. And then I think recently I've become very interested in, since we did this project in Mozambique, where there's a full international ethical audit, which is a project we did a couple of years ago. Uh, and I'm obviously watching the trends in the market, seeing people's communications. I was involved in that ethical audit um, and, and it was a really amazing experience. And I started to, we've become a more compliant roastery, you know, so like food safety, compliance, traceability. And as I've done that, I've started to realize that there's not a lot of this in coffee, especially coffee mm -hmm. at all. Um, and, you know, like when you're in the raw business of it as well, you see stuff like when you're in wholesale, it's easy as a like a, you know, a, a, what's it called? Um, and you are an, opt an optimistic barista and you, you're excited by coffee and, and you get behind the curtain and see some of the core practices of businesses, quite commercial, quite ruthless and, you're like, I don't really know that what you're saying you'll do over here is actually what you're doing. And and it's really interesting being in business because you're, we talk about coffee as a community, right? But we're all in business as well. And a lot of us are selling to similar customer types. We're actually competitors. Um, so yeah, so the, the YouTube channel that I came up with recently was I've seen these things. I've been around them for a while. And I just found it fascinating how no one seems to voice these, they're like these dirty conversation that happens 
over a pint or something that people don't <laughs> feel they can say out loud, right? Like they'd yeah. say it. And so um, so that's been a bit of my focus recently. And I missed, to be honest, I did all those years of barista cons, traveling the world, talking to the community. Uh, for the last three, four years, I, I felt like I was missing that. And it was valuable to try and keep those conversations happening. And um, you know, in a way, my YouTube channel is a different version of what I used to do in Bristocons. So I definitely want to come back to the YouTube topic. And I we kind of glazed over the whole water topic as well. And, and the books that I didn't even realize that you had a, a dictionary um, about coffee. So I'd love to, to dig into that uh, just for a few minutes and maybe share what was your you know, because you mentioned you started sharing that in barista competitions, you started digging into it for yourself and trying to find a medium to express some of the, you know, maybe more specifically water, and maybe there's more to it uh, than just water. But um, I want to hear from you, like what motivated you to to write the book? And then also how that led into designing the the peak water filter, which is kind of a, this video is a little bit of a follow up to the, the YouTube video that I made about the peak um, and brewing with it at home. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about water. Yeah, no, that, that one's really in, in and of itself, like, um, a, a great experience and a great journey. Uh, I've never done anything in coffee because I thought there was a business there at the end of it. Um, I, I'm interested talking about the art side. I'm interested in a business as a vehicle to explore something creatively, right? Um, which is always the fine art conundrum. Like, you know, you have to sell artwork to do more artwork. <laughs> yeah. Example. So coffee's kind of cool. Like the audience, there's a there's an audience out there who you want to do some interesting, innovative, creative things. Like there's quite a lot of support for that out there. It's, you know, I've had a lot of support in my career um, so far. I hope it continues. <laughs> um, the water one is like, a, is it really just a typical... Uh, questioning expect like a curiosity i had a problem like it makes a good ted talk right i had a problem i looked into it we had we went on a journey and we came out the other end not really with a solution to be honest but with a better understanding so the way i tell the water story is and it's true is 2013 maybe uh we're in the cafe in bath uh and we used to buy from different roasters and we had a coffee that tastes not good from a roaster in London. And, you know, for a long time, and even now, it's really hard to know if we're having the same experience anywhere in the world. Like, are you really brewing it the same yeah. way as me? Even though we've got a similar grinder and a similar machine, is it is it really the same brew, right? But, but we're all, at this point, everyone's communicating things a lot more. This is the weight of coffee I used. This is the, uh, this is the output. Uh, this is the TDS reading. All these readings that, mean that you have more faith that the brew in London is closer to the brew in Bath. And it would have been easy. So I so the coffee didn't taste good and no one no one likes doing this. I hate and now as a roaster I know it's not nice. <laughs> when the barista gets in touch with the roaster and says your coffee's bad. Yeah. <laughs> so we sent it back to them and they brewed it and we're like, tastes great here. Now, I think the easy thing there is to chalk that up to subjectivity, right? To be like, oh, well, you know, I disagree, right? But I tasted coffee with with some of their team. And I think we were on a pretty similar, we, we like similar things, right? We, you know, I don't think anyone has the same, very few people have the same favorite coffee. But what's interesting is I find it quite good as a community or in, or in business that 
people actually can quite agree quite easily on what bad is. Yeah. Uh, or like a minimum viable or a quality or something. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so I trusted their opinion. And in, in amongst that spec sheet that you email back and forth, like how did you brew it, your brew recipe, like a lot of roasters do cards and stuff, which I hate, but that's another conversation. Uh, I think they're useless. But um, on that sheet, all the way down, there was water and a TDS reading of water. And at the time, all everybody did, and that's still very common, is bought a 20-pound TDS meter, which is technically a conductivity meter. Um, and really, it's a very simple process uh, or premise. It's two little um, metal rods go into the water, and they measure the ionic movement between. So the more ions, which basically ions are your water minerals, the more ions in the water, the more movement, the higher the number. Therefore, a higher TDS reading is a harder water, and a lower TDS reading is a softer water. Pretty straightforward. And everyone was saying the number you need is 150. And I was just looking at it, and I was like, so 150 of what? Like, there's 150 here, 150 in London, 150 in, uh, you know, Cardiff or whichever other city around the world. How do we know the 150 are the same everywhere? And that was my basic question. And Chris, the chemist, uh, walked in. And I was like, hey, Chris, I've got a question for you. And I just explained it to him. And I showed him the TDS meter. And he, he was like, are you serious? I said, what do you mean? He said, are you serious? The coffee industry used this to measure whether the water is consistent. I was like, yeah. And he actually laughed out loud. And uh, he said, well, you know, it doesn't tell you what the components are. It's based on an assumption that most TDS is made up of uh, calcium carbonate, like limescale. But there's loads of things that not only does it not tell you what's in there, but things like chlorine move, chlorides move twice as fast as calcium, right? So like the number itself is all over the place. And this is the same with a lot of devices we use in coffee. Like a TDS meter doesn't actually measure the, um, doesn't actually measure the extraction of the coffee. It measures the refraction of light, which it then uh, uses the calculation to to approximate uh, what that actually means for dissolved solids in that beverage, basically. <clears throat> and we, we do this a lot in coffee. We use measurements to tell us that we're not actually measuring the thing we think we're measuring, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, and we just started the project and all the roasters were super collaborative. They sent water, they sent coffee. Chris took it up to the university and um, he was sort of unusual as a PhD student in that he'd already done several academic papers. Most PhD students have, you know, not done one. And um, he was a bit cheeky, but in a good way, got use of the equipment at the university, which we probably should have paid for. <laughs> and uh, it just became this project. And then he realized quite quickly that there was probably an academic paper there. So he pursued that. But I, I don't know if anyone who's ever been involved in academic research, it's a pro and a con academic research. So quite rightly, you need to ask a very specific question with controlled variables to prove something. Mm -hmm. What that normally means is you're looking at a topic through like a straw. You're looking at a very specific thing and you set a bunch of variables and most academic papers in whatever field, in fitness or strength, which is my other hobby, or coffee or anything, very rarely is an academic paper representative without a load of other things, a load of other context which means you get a lot of misunderstanding. 
So all we were looking at was, it was a computational um, paper. And all we were looking at really was the binding energy of ions. So what that means is the, the energy for like magnesium or calcium or sodium to bind and extract coffee from the water, from the, yeah, for the water to extract it from the coffee. And we published this paper and it, it proved that they have different binding energies and that might be interesting for coffee. The problem was it's misleading, right? Because, well, not even misleading. It, it's, it can't be the only thing. For anyone around the world who's made coffee with hard water, how does it taste? It it tastes pretty bad, right? Like, it, it tastes flat, it tastes dull. So on the one hand, you're like, oh, minerals help extraction. You're like, well, okay, why do the cups made with hard water taste flat and dull? They should taste big and bold. Yeah. And that is when we realized that, you know, what, what I would describe that the theory of water really for coffee brewing now has two sides. It has the ions that you need in there to help with the extraction there's a bit of debate about whether it is binding energy or other things but either way it changes the extraction and then the buffering which is a much harder complex uh, uh, concept for people to get their head around um basically buffering is the water the solution trying to manage its ph so coffee is a mildly acidic beverage about 5.5 ph with seven being neutral and higher numbers being alkaline uh Something like wine is really acidic, like 2.53, like really mm -hmm. acidic. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this fascinating thing happening when you brew coffee with, with harder water. You've got minerals helping in some way, and then you've got more and more bicarbonate, which is trying to stabilize the pH, in this case, flattening the acidity of the coffee. The best example I could show for people to try this themselves is brew a cup of coffee, like a really fruity coffee, like a Kenyan or something, buy some baking soda, and drop the tiniest amount in, like, you know, like a pinprick. It will just wipe out all the acidity okay. in the coffee. So anyway, the reason I wrote the book was because that second uh, concept, no one understood from the paper. Because the paper doesn't talk about that. The paper just talks about binding energy. So everybody starts to go, oh, magnesium, 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 right? This is the other thing about papers. The paper doesn't tell you what's better or worse. It just tells you something happens. Yeah. Same with freezing paper right oh the grind of the coffee changes when it's frozen it was then the community that decided whether they thought that was a good or a bad thing the paper didn't say it just said there is a change right and so water's so complicated and i did the routine in rimini and i got a great response from that but with the paper as people started to read it i noticed that like the the wider theory was missing and the context for that paper was missing, which is why we decided to write the book. Um, if anyone's read that book, the first half of it is like a textbook, and that's me trying to get Chris, the chemist, to be as simple oh, yeah. as possible. That's the simple version. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny because I go on. No, I was just gonna say because I've I've I did read start reading the first half of the book, and I think a lot of it uh, went over my head, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna put this down and come back to it. Um, haven't had a chance to get into maybe the second half as you are about to explain. Well, the second half was more my half about like the applicability of that science uh, within practically within coffee. Uh, but you'll see, like I gave a speech in, I gave a speech in a, in SCA symposium, and someone came up to me afterwards and they were like, "So that was a really great speech. You you talked about the problem, you identified it, you worked and collaborated with scientists to have a better understanding of the topic." 
And he said, but you didn't give me any solutions. And I was like, well, yeah, I thought, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to, for us, that whole project was about understanding the topic better. And it's one of those topics, which I think a lot of people in coffee, I think some people in coffee have done very well by giving people very black and white suggestions or solutions. Like this mm -hmm. is what good coffee looks like. And people want it, right? Humans like stuff in facts. Yeah. We like stuff to make sense. And everything I've done, I push back against it. Like I refused with the water. Uh, we could have easily done that book and said to everyone around the world, the best water is, that's what everyone should use. And I was like, nah, nah, because it's just not true. It doesn't yeah. make any sense, right? The more we studied it, the more we're like, wow, this is a complex feed loop, feedback loop. The craziest bit is the roasting. And that became the most powerful thing to me was that every roaster is roasting their coffee to their water, which they're cupping with, and they're getting it to taste best with that water. And then you can see roasting styles vary around the world with different waters. So yeah. a soft water is going to taste a bit thinner on body, a bit more sour. So you roast it to have a bit, you know, you to tame that acidity, basically just a bit darker, right? Um, and, you know, then it goes again with espresso refilter. Like, espresso is far more concentrated than filter coffee. So if I said to you, oh, here's a water with um, 150 ppm, right? That's very misleading because that's parts per million. That's not there's 150 minerals in this jug of water. That means there's 150 every little cubic bit of water, right? The reason that's really important is if I make espresso, I use less water, which means ultimately I use less minerals. And if I make a filter coffee, I use more water, more minerals. So th that's actually the opposite of what you want, right? So filter coffee is really dilute. So you've got to work to help the acidity. So you're using more minerals, more bicarbonate, which flattens the acidity. And in espresso, you've got a tame acidity to balance at such a high yeah. concentration. <laughs> so actually, you don't want the same water for this for espresso or filter do you want a dilemma yeah right but i guess my, my point sort of being here is you know the water here is an ingredient that has properties that can change so let's for me it's about educating people on this ingredient not fixing it as a variable let's come back to that because i have um some questions for you later about what because this this brings up uh, a thought for me in terms of, because you said you were talking about that that sheet or that sort of instructional um, card of how people should be brewing. And then in the early days, it was like, this is my ratio, this is my yield, or this is my dose. And then at the end, there was like, this is the water we're using. The reason I hate the uh, brew cars the most yeah. is not actually because of water. It's because of grinding. Yeah. So if you said to me, what, what, what are the two impacts on the way a cup of coffee tastes more than anything else? I'll give you a bag of roasted coffee. Yeah. What are the two things that are going to have the biggest impact on the quality of that cup? I would say they are grind and water. Those are the two things you're very hard to put on a card. That's why I find the cards misleading because they give a false sense of confidence that you've mimicked a recipe. So, you know, I, I followed the recipe. I used this many grams in, this many out. I used water just off the boil. You know, and there's from their point of view, you've kind of taught them that that's it. They've nailed it. And there's these two big variables that are not even really mentioned there. Or maybe they mention it like use good water or, and then the grind one's funny, right? Because like, you know, what is a medium grind? I mean, I know some people try with the salt thing. I quite like square miles thing where they sent out grind references. Have you seen that? Yeah. It's yeah. sent out 
little samples of grind so you could look at it. And the coffee tasting, the world's coffee tasting they sent out, like this is the reference grind size they should be using. I think, again, it comes back to even in that, in that scenario, who you're communicating to. And I think we were talking about different types of people in the coffee industry. There's like the super noobs who maybe they're going to dive down the rabbit hole or maybe not, right? And so how are we going to communicate it to them in such a way where it's not too overwhelming that it's like, oh, I can make, you know, better coffee. I can raise the bottom bar a little bit. I can get to a point where, wow, this is great um, as opposed to terrible. And then, you know, communicating to maybe a smaller sub-segment where it's like, I really want to get into the nitty-gritty or you want to make sure that they understand the nitty-gritty because they're the ones purveying that to other people who are maybe noobs or maybe don't care so much about the, the, the science. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a communication thing as well. It is, yeah. And I think, I think as technology improves, though, I think you'll just end up with two different cohorts. And this, I think this blur will just go. So, uh, like capsules cometeer in the states the frozen coffee you know the yeah and cute it tastes really good right it tastes you could sit there and say oh it's got a taste to it but like it tastes better than a, a lot of brewed coffee so for somebody you know what can go wrong with all that communication you just described um you know with cometeer or capsules or, or, or some of these methods of single serve prepared coffee all you've really then got to do is the water because you've done the grind. You've, you've not, not only have you done the grind, you've extracted it with the cometeer one. With the capsule one, you've still got to extract it from people. But I guess, you know, I, I often say that the reason I like capsules is um, brewing. It really, it doesn't just get in the way of people experiencing and making nice coffee. It gets in the way of the narrative. So... I believe that, you know, my experience, people come into the shop, they buy three bags of coffee. There's so much of the conversation with a bag of beans is about how to brew it. Mm. And by the time you've had that conversation, there's, they haven't talked to you really much about the coffee, the flavor profile or the origin at all. And so what I like about those other methods, people often assume why well, I, I found like a really false assumption with capsules that you were just dumbing everything down. And I'm like, no, no, no. By taking away the brewing, you're making the tasting experience more sophisticated, right? So if I if I brew in my kitchen and I have a grinder and I've got beans, the sophistication is around the brewing. The drinking experience is quite unsophisticated. I drank one coffee and my hopper's full up or I've opened the bag. So my, right, whereas with the other methods, the sophistication of tasting, like a tasting flight, is way more achievable. So... Oh, I'm going to pop that one in. Oh, that one really floral. Oh, that one I think is more fruity. Whatever you want. Right? I mean, you know, I hate flavor notes, but um, <laughs> the yeah, I prefer Kenyan coffee, or um, I don't like Kenyan coffee that much. And you, and the customer can learn. And the best bit about it is you don't even have to tell them to do it. Give someone a box of different pods with a machine, and they'll just do it on their own. They'll yeah. just try the different ones. They'll have a tasting experience. So, I think we often are quite linear in coffee that there's like highly sophisticated brewing and convenient dumbed down brewing. And I think from a coffee experience point of view, that's not this linear gradient, right? You're, you're, you're swapping one thing out for another. You're saying, okay, you want to focus on the ritual of brewing. You're going to focus less on the tasting of origins. I see a lot of parallels, even especially how you've voiced it now 
uh, it's coming to my mind parallels between the photography industry, which, you know, I've been familiar with much more in the past and the coffee industry, which I'm becoming more and more familiar with every day. And there's a lot of parallels here between people who love the gear and are able to utilize the gear and love using the gear and, you know, really care about what they're using, whether it's photography or coffee. And then those who just want to create something great and aren't really that fussed about, you know, what's the specific gear, they might have their thing and they make great artwork. So with photography, I met so many photographers who they don't even necessarily know the full breadth of their camera or they don't, maybe they have a few different lenses, but they just use what look, what feels right, what looks right. Whereas I've, I've met also a lot of photographers who take extremely boring photos, but happen to know every single piece of their camera editing software. Why we should you should, why should you use this lens or this filter with this cable, with this tripod. And, you know, I think the same thing is it, we're getting to that place in coffee where I am someone who's not necessarily so much about the gear, but I do love the process of brewing and like all the different metrics, but I'm not down that, you know, that nerdy, I am a coffee nerd, but I'm not so much to the point where I'm going to get lost in the weeds where other people like to. And, and I think that's an amazing part of the hobby, right? A hundred percent. I think it's a really interesting analogy and um, it's a really good one. I just want to be clear. I don't think like loving the ritual brewing is a bad thing at all. No. I just think that that cohort saying that not loving that is bad is, is wrong, right? Like, you know, I think that's cool too. I'm like, yeah, cool. But I think uh, it's more nuanced than it's often been presented as, as a, um, you know, like as a community, right? Specialty. I mean, you know, someone, you know, some, I think, you know, what is the word specialty? What does it mean? <laughs> if you go back far enough, there's academic papers when Starbucks was new, specialty is a latte. That that was a latte at the, at the mm -hmm. time, right? Yeah. And um, I was a talk at Cafe Culture and the historian said, you know, are capsules specialty? Um, so there's some people who believe that you need to make it, et cetera. I mean, I, it's, I'm a funny one because I do talks where I argue that automation won't take over, mm. but then I am really into capsules, right? But that's where people miss the point is, it's not one format rules all at all. It, it's a it's an industry with a bunch of different ways to make it, and they all have different values. And I actually think what you're seeing is they're all sort of ending up sitting side by side. You know, the amount of customers we have who buy beans and capsules is amazing. I'm, I'm quite surprised by it. Right. You, you often think they're fighting each other, and I'm not sure they are. Yeah, it totally reminds me of coming back to well. As we mentioned, co the specialty coffee sub-segment or sub-industry is still very new. And with photography, I think that there are there were those people, those purists, like, you know, maybe film only, or maybe it was even DSLR only, and then mirrorless came along. Or the fact that, you know, everyone has a, a phone in their pocket with, with camera capabilities now. So in the beginning, it might be, might have been seen, okay, if you're taking a photo with your phone, you know, it's a much lesser uh, of of an experience or a product than if you actually know how to use the camera and the aperture and the and the shutter speed. But I think that's changing now. A lot of people are using their phone and they're kind of over the whole narrative of like, it has to be like this. You have to develop your own film or, or these types of... Uh... And you also get like a resurgence too, right? Like there's a resurgence in vinyl or... Um... So, so it's interesting. It's like you, you, you're not saying it has to be the only way. You're saying we do it for these reasons, but it's better or worse at these things. I mean, the, the interesting thing about your, your purism point is so interesting to me because I feel like that's the debate at the moment with coffee processing and adding flavors to tanks. Mm, yeah. But I think that's a bit different because, you know, 
really what you're trying to guess is what the value is of the thing at the end. So it's very easy to become, to not see where something could become valuable later. And obviously the interesting one about cameras and phones is technology, right? Like there was a time in history where the person said you can't achieve as good a quality with a camera phone and or, or you can't even begin to play in the same arena. And that would have been true for a long period of time, right? And then there's a tipping point where the technology gets to the point where you, that's not such a strong argument anymore, right? Um, and I think, yeah, we see that all across coffee, really. Um, and it's also interesting because people get taught something, right? A complex, like photography's complex, coffee's complex. And most people are just trying to figure out, like, okay, let's just set a few ground rules for what good looks. <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, it's challenging for everyone involved that five years down the line, those ground rules might not be true anymore. You know, like, yeah. But then you also see some amazing people in coffee, like George Howe. Yeah. You know, that, that dude's been doing it forever. And you talk to him and totally open-minded, always, always moving forward, always questioning. So, so cool. um, yeah, it's really, really cool. But I just want to finish off the peak water point. Uh, so we talked a lot there and the peak water just came out of um, <clears throat> this idea. I was, I was basically watching homebrewers, which is really your point about the card so much for a long time of what we talked about as a community was making coffee in a cafe right like crazy amount like in a roastery or a cafe and then the home brewers mayor you know you, yeah. you know you had home filter brewers um was getting a bit more popular because it's more accessible espresso like you know everyone was like oh that's a nightmare don't bother with that um covid comes along and just changes everything uh but I actually believe a lot of people are making better coffee at home after COVID than a lot of cafes are making. Uh, for a few reasons, you know, they're, they're buying better coffee because they are buying it for themselves, not for the bottom line of the cafe. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, they're really, they have the time to explore it and the hobby and, uh, you know, I, but the peak water came from going, okay, me and Chris have been working on this under the counter system with Pentair, who are a large global water company. Yeah, they got a few different brands around the world, like Everpure. And it was this amazing system, right? It was like this, um, uh, the ultimate barista system where you, you would reverse osmosis all the minerals out of the water and you'd have these little um, concentrations of different minerals and you could choose what you add. So you're like, oh, I'm going to add some magnesium, I'm going to add some bicarbonate. And you could play around with recipes and it would like feed it in line to the water. And this is all really cool. There's some problems there which... Um, a part of the issue I have with people making waters is when you make waters with mineral salt, that is not the same as natural water. You're adding other compounds. If you have magnesium sulfate, you've got a ton of sulfate. If you add sodium bicarbonate, you've got a ton of sodium. And I think a lot of people miss this point. Um, there's a few, I think it actually gets to the point where you're borderline flavoring it. So if you use magnesium citrate, citrate is, will become citric acid in the, in the water. So someone's like, oh, I used this uh, water recipe and the coffee tastes really fruity. I'm like, yep, I'm sure it does because you put citric acid in the water. So, oh, wow. you know, that's, that's a totally separate topic, but like a brewer's cup level, like at what point are you manipulating minerals and at what point are you just changing the flavor of the coffee, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, this system was interesting, but it was big, it was expensive. And this is another thing, like innovation in coffee is about whether you can sell units. I think a lot of people who sit in a room and debate about the future of coffee, they forget this. Like how much value is there in an AI super robot that roasts or brews coffee? Like how much better than a human can it be? And 
because it would have to be better to justify the price, right? And how much more money could you charge for a cup of coffee made with it? Or how much more money could the business save? And these are really basic commercials, but there's a reason biotech innovates quicker than other fields because there's so much money. There's a reason innovation in coffee is slower because there's less money. So you have to understand all of that. And um, when you run businesses, you, un you, know, you get it. You're like, oh, this is a really cool product, but we could probably only sell 100, which means it's not worth doing. So anyway, we're doing all that. And I just became, I was more and more interested in home brewers, the capsules uh, that, you know, lots of our focus online. And I just was like, this is crazy. Like these cartridges in cafes are pretty good. Like they can be better, but cafes have already got a half decent solution and, and people at home have, are really struggling. They're buying bottled water. They're coming in and going, oh, do I buy Volvic or Waitrose? And it's expensive and they're wasting the plastic and, I'm just like, well, why don't we just take the technology that's under the counter in cafes and put it into a format people are familiar with in their homes, like a Brita jug. And that really is, is, is what peak water is. It's the reapplication of a technology. Of course, it's a bit different because under a counter, um, the cartridge has line pressure. So, you know, jugs are gravity fed. So you've got some like water flow challenges. It's not super easy. In fact, that's been the hardest Making a, your own physical project is so hard, um, yeah. product. Uh, especially if you injection mold it. So if you CNC things and make them one by one, that's way easier. But if you make things injection molded, it's really hard. And I'm still, you know, I'm focusing a lot on peak now, fixing, fixing things with it, making it better. Um, and hopefully we'll launch two new colors. They're nicer polymers. They look nice. They feel nicer. The lid and everything fits better. Um, and it's just so, you know, really challenging to make those changes. Uh, the other interesting thing I think about water, I said to someone the other day, I was like, out of all the things I could have chosen to make a product in, I chose one where it's really hard to please customers, like really hard. Because, um, you know, you, water is so complex. Anyone who works in it knows that none of the solutions are easy. There's always like a trade-off. And if you look at most water companies, they always have a range of products because... Really, they're creating a range of products because people have different waters. So they're going, okay, you're in that area and you've got high chlorine, have this one. You've got a pH problem, have this one. You've got super high calcium, have this one. And so what we've, the challenge we've had with peak waters has gone out around the world is those resins in there are like really impressive, like real high quality dual ion resins. They basically allow you to pull out most of what's in the water. But... In some waters around the world, that resin really struggles and like um, it will die real quick. So people will only get 20 liters uh, or the anion resin in particular. Um, if it's exhausted in certain waters quickly, you get like this aroma. It's called trimethylamine, which is like totally harmless and normal, but humans are really sensitive to it. Uh, and it's like a slight fishy smell. And that you get that when the filter's at the end of life. But, you know, I've... I've I've ended up going back. So in, you know, it's all around the world, the filter, and some people are really happy with it and some people have more challenges with it. And you go back and forward. And what's interesting about it is there isn't obvious alternatives, right? So like, oh, you can go and buy expensive deionized water and add mineral salts. Well, the mineral salts aren't the same as natural water. Or you can um, uh, buy bottled water uh, or you could buy a system, like your own reverse osmosis system. So it's interesting, like there's a lesson for me about customer comms is I wish I'd tested it more because I can hit like high literage in the UK quite 
in a lot of locations. But then someone's like, oh, I'm only getting 20 liters. And they, well, actually 20 liters at the price of the cartridge is still cheaper than buying bottled water, right? So, but of course they were like, oh, I thought I was gonna get 80 liters. So it's an expectation thing. Mm. And I think I'm gonna launch a second there, which uh, will have way longer life. Uh, will never have any trimethylamine issues, but it won't get your TDSs low. It will just control your bicarbonate. Mm. And so a lot of what, you know, like the problem with RO is, you know, a lot of the misunderstanding of RO for a long time was that it gives you full control. It doesn't, it just allows you to control the dilution, right? And they have the waste element of RO, et cetera. But yeah, I do think water is so, so challenging to work on. It's very hard to give people a turnkey water solution that ticks all the boxes. So as far as like innovating and product development goes, it's a really tough area to do it in. But it's also for, you know, that's also interesting, right? Like, okay, well, let's try that solution. Oh, that works well here. doesn't work as well here. Let's improve it. Let's move forward. I think the main challenge, again, is just, you know, being completely candid is money, right? Like this guy who works for a very large company gave me a review of Peak and he said, oh, I do this differently and this differently. And I was like, yeah, what was cool for us as a team is we were like, those are all the things that we would like to change and tweak. And I sat him down with him and said, so to do that, you'd have to retool this, right? And he was like, yeah. And I said, how much do you think that would be? He's like, maybe 300 grand. I was like, yeah, so this is why I'm not going to be able to do any of these things. So like, um, like figuring out how to create something that has an impact within the budget based on fundamentals is sort of where my, where I'm always trying to achieve. Yeah. And like always trying to ask, okay, well, it's not, you know, some things like a kettle will sell like a boring kettle. It really will be about finish and feel, right? Because it's quite a simple thing. And the innovation there is quite simple. Like, you know, you might change the slight pour, but, you know, um, in other fields where you're just trying to address a foundational problem, yeah, that's for me your primary goal. And then the fit and finish and the other bits you can address later, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Wow. Yeah. Innovating on a, on a physical product, as you mentioned, it's, um, it's a lot harder than a digital product and even communication, communication being a, a digital product as well. Right. Or, or even like, I think we forget how set up for R and D coffee is right. Like, mm. you know, it's quite easy to play around with product development. You can maybe not capsules, but what I mean is like, oh, we can try a different roast. We can tweak the roast. We can yeah. put it in a different bag. We can use a different batch size. We could, I mean, one of the, we have some fun processes we're doing with green coffee. Let's rehydrate the green coffee. Let's do all these things. Like playing around with coffee is quite low barrier to entry, right? Like low investment. I buy a couple of sacks. Um, product development is like, it's, it's a whole other world. It's, um, it's, been, it's been an amazing uh, project and I'm super, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, we launched it April, 2020. Uh, now we're, November 2021, I think we'll have, you know, a lot of the changes made by the end of this year, beginning of next year. And then, then you start thinking about, you've had other ideas for other products, right? Um, and you start figuring out like how you could bring those to life and stuff. I'd love to hear a little bit more of your, about your YouTube channel and it specifically, if you have any sort of, you know, I know that you started it to be able to communicate some of these these things that you had in your mind and be able to reach a little bit bigger audience. Um, and also, if you have any vision for the channel, if you have any sort of future goals or like this is what I would love to be able to do if I can if I can 
manage to either find a bigger audience or maybe create some projects. I'd just love to, to hear a little bit more of your YouTube channel and be able to, to push anyone watching uh, over there to check out some of your, some of your great content. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, the YouTube channel. I probably started it, uh, yeah, I got to it a little bit late. A few people have told me for a while, they're like, you know, you should do some videos. But the funny thing was they were telling me to do videos like, um, I didn't get, you know, it's, it, it, I, I wasn't going to do YouTube originally. I was going to do podcast because, you know, there's all these rules on YouTube about how to maximize audience and generate revenue and everything. And it's like, make sure it's 10 minutes, make sure you do this with the audience. Um, and obviously you spend a lot of time like looking at what people want to watch. So you end up making content that you think will get views rather than just making the content you want. Right. It's just a different game. And I'd seen some very, you know, very successful. I have a lot of respect for people who have, I just, the, the, the work that goes into creating high quality YouTube content week in, week out is insane. Like. Um, and for me, I, when I said I was going to do it, some of my friends were like, come on, you already do too much. And I was like, my, my premise is quite simple. I'm having these conversations anyway, right? I'm in the roastery. Uh, it's come up and it's turned into a debate about something or I'm having them at a trade show or whatever. So I'm having these conversations anyway. So, you know, I think they're valuable conversations they get lost at the moment and we just circle back to them regularly. They don't get actioned or we don't yeah. hold the conversation as much. Um, and I was just like, look, actually, if I think if I, if I, if I video these and I put them on YouTube, I think it's a, a healthier space for those conversations. Right. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, I made a promise to myself that anyone who gets in touch with me off the back of them, um, I'll talk to and explore and hear. So I've learned from them and already like, I would say that YouTube channel has already been a success for me professionally and personally in that I've learned a lot more about some of those topics by stimulating the conversation, right? Yeah. And um, I, mine's for the industry. My, that channel is for, and when I say the industry, it doesn't mean you have to work in coffee. It's for the like heavily engaged, um, could be a prosumer, hobbyist, but but really the industry. And And I think there's some other channels that are doing a great job at bringing in new customers to the world of coffee. I think I, um, you know, with that channel, I want to challenge my peer group in coffee to, on some of these things we're doing as businesses and doing as an industry. Yeah. That's really and I, goalful, right? That's awesome. I think that there's, there's like we were talking about earlier, there's room for, for both. And in fact, there's need for both. And sometimes that can be overlooked by either people in the industry or outside that like, just because you have a great idea, what you were saying earlier, you have a great idea for a video and you want to put it out there and maybe you want to put out consistently, you know, different content that comes to your mind. This kind of, these kind of conversations might not work with an audience where it's more hobbyist, prosumer, people who just want to find out about, you know, whether they should buy this grinder or that grinder. And, you know, you put out another video that's completely out of left field and it's about the industry or it's about, you know, different business practices, they might just not resonate with it. And then you're not attracting more of an audience that maybe down the line, you can start to slowly seep in these ideas that, that can give people different perspectives or, you know, be able to help inform their purchasing decisions, even if they're not working in the industry. So I think it's really, it's nice. It's, it's, it's important to focus on a bit of a niche 
and go there like what you're like what you're doing and then you know see see what it opens up later down the line totally and i think like success any project like your idea of success in that project is contextual right like the most obvious success is you know this is the big the best but the biggest version or the, the most viewers or the most but like engagement's interesting right and um you know like the do lectures or uh there's um the podcast by seth godin that i listen to and you know his courses and that podcast are for like entrepreneurs and business owners his audience won't be huge but those audiences have impact in their industries right so like um you know if, if, if some of my videos can challenge some people working in coffee companies to to address and think about things and that's one or two people right so like it doesn't have to be tens of thousands so i'm i'm quite happy with the the sort of viewership of the channel i mean the danger of course is that the most viewed videos are the controversial ones <laughs> so you know i was listening to an interview with ksi um who took a break from youtubing if people don't know everyone should know ksi is. um there because he said like it encouraged him he he figured out what got him more views and it was to be more controversial. And he said he didn't like where that took him. It just, you know, uh, and I think right. that's the same challenge with all these content things is, of course, you want to see what people enjoy and give them some content they want to divulge, but you want to be careful that you don't just end up pandering that to the point where you're not actually, you're almost going against your values, right? You're picking fights just to just to get a reaction and... Yeah, you're just fanning the flames, right? Just to, it's just hyperbolic, um, you know, like a lot of what you hear on certain radio channels and stuff, where you get two people on either side just to fight. <laughs> and yeah, they, they say this, they say this is the danger of social media, right? Which is um, people are drawn to like negativity as well, right? Uh, it's dramatic and uh, it engages people. Um, so yeah, so I think um, you know, I, I'm trying for me. The challenge is putting the content out on top of everything else I do. And I already feel guilty because I think like since my last video, um, it is probably six weeks since I posted a video. But um, I also want it to be constructive for me. It's not going to take over from my other stuff. So I'm going to put content out when I can. And sometimes that'll be like two or three in a month. And sometimes it might not be for a couple of months. Um, I want to revisit topics as well. So there's a danger with all kind of modern media that we put something out there. We have a short conversation about it and then it goes, right? So I guess the most important topics I'd like to revisit uh, and also share what I've learned about those topics following the previous conversations. Yeah. No, it's great to have, it's great to have that follow-up. I think you're, you're right in the set. Well, it does take us so much work and that I think is a, is a, is, can be a nice filter. You know, so not everyone's doing it, but like if you really are dedicated, then you can you can keep doing it. But also, I think that's the beauty about YouTube for these types of conversations, as opposed to Instagram, which is very Insta. It's very uh, it's very immediate. You might put a post live, but people, yeah, 24 hours, 48 hours, people aren't seeing it again. Um, it's a little bit different with Reels now. I noticed that they seem to be circulating more. But with YouTube, what's nice is that it can at least people can come back to it even a year, two years, three years later it might resurface and, and you can have that conversation, but revisiting too, and being able to kind of reflect on, okay, this is what we were talking about then. This is what I, this is what I thought then. This is what I said then. This is how it's changed. I think that's, that's also a powerful transformation for people to, to witness and to tune into. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think someone also made the interesting comment there. Um, so, I, so I agree. I think that's why I did uh, did the YouTube in the end because also the comments as well. Like you don't get that on a podcast, right? Yeah, you true. do it and then you stop. I mean, some of the podcasts try to do the things where you know you can obviously send in a question and on the next episode they talk about those questions to try and get that feedback. Yeah. Um, the danger of the comment section, of course. Uh, <laughs> Is that I've become, uh, I actually started a podcast. Um, I'm doing better with the YouTube channel than I did with the podcast where um, we started one a few years ago and it, it wasn't, I didn't want to talk to coffee people. I wanted to talk to people who aren't in coffee, but I met through coffee. So I talked to like musicians, authors, all sorts of people. And the author, Joe Abercrombie, he said, you know, it doesn't matter. He said, you know, when you've got a million reviews on Goodreads, he said, you know, someone's like, oh, you've only got a hundred one-star reviews and he's like he made me laugh he goes but yeah imagine if you were in a square with those hundred people who hate your work <laughs> like it's still you know it's so easy just to focus on that negativity right but i was actually going to say so far how pleased i am with the comments on the youtube videos and i think someone put a comment on there and said it's so nice to see that at the moment <laughs> these comments are like like real conversations about the topic right rather than just trolling. Yeah. Uh, that's actually one of the dangers, I think, with a larger um, audience, is the comments become sort of pointless. <laughs> well, I, I think they do. Like, yeah, yeah. They become like, um, I see in some of them, you, you end up with a bunch of people who comment there, and if this becomes, some of them are quite nice, it's just about making jokes and stuff, and there's like memes, it's like meme culture, really. Um, but... At the moment, I just feel it's it's. I feel like it's it. They're reaching the right people, having the right chats. The most interesting thing about my YouTube channel, uh, with the controversial subjects, is the amount of not on YouTube dialogue. So what I mean by that is people who are uncomfortable to put their opinion up publicly, and that is really interesting with some of the topics. I mean, the most fascinating one for me is, you know, I put up a video saying that basically, I don't think. Any specialty, most specialty coffee businesses can prove they're sourcing planes, right? Now, that should be quite controversial. It should piss people off. But everyone's a bit like, oh, yeah. Right? So everyone talks about that and jumps on the comments. Then I do my rant about barista comps. People don't want to come and talk about it. People, if that is a more sensitive subject than whether you lie about your sourcing. Can you believe that? But it makes sense when you start digging into it. And I had one person put up a comment on my world champ, the WBC video, and they took it down. And it was a really great comment. They've been judging in the US for 20 years. And um, they said, yeah, these problems are systemic. And they really outlined the dynamic. And then about an hour later, it was taken down. And YouTube sometimes takes down. I've had a problem with it just taking down people's comments. Oh, wow. So I reached out to this person and I said, oh, Hey, I, I thought it was a great comment. Uh, I don't know why YouTube's taking it down. Could you put it back up? They're like, oh no, I've taken it down because it's going to cause me too much trouble in the coffee community if I leave it up there. I, I know that you've uh, you've spoken a little bit about barista comps, of which I truthfully know very little, just because I've never competed and not been in the industry that long. But um, but it's interesting how that can be such a contrast from even just talking about sourcing and, and transparency to like this sensitivity of a barista comps and. I'm curious where that comes from, uh, why there's that stark contrast. Yeah, I think it's because there's a lot of personal interest uh, in competitions, more so 
than the sourcing policy of a coffee company. I mean, there's a lot of individuals in coffee comps, right? So you've got the competitors themselves. Obviously, they're invested. I mean, that's obvious. I think a lot of people miss how invested a lot of the judges are. Like, you know, they make careers for themselves being a part of the judging. They're, they're a stakeholder. Um, the organization behind it, obviously. There's just a lot of individuals that I was at. I had a lot of people reach out to me off the back of that one. Um, and, you know, almost like a surprising lack of defense for that one. Like one, I think Dale Harris was the only person and we're going to have a debate about it and film it and stick it on the channel. <laughs> nice. But um, it's sort of interesting, like th th someone phoned me up and they said, oh, Maxwell, I'd, I like the new video. I said, oh, thanks. They said... Uh, I've had eight different international judges reach out to me and say they feel personally attacked by your video. And I said, this is the problem, mm. right? Now, the problem is you've got this fascinating dynamic where you've got competitors and coaches and people on one side and judges on the other, and there's no one in the middle saying, how's this working, right? There's no real oversight. Mm. So competitors can't question the judging because the judges are like, don't attack us. Right. And then and then vice versa, that there's just a complete lack of transparency. Like this year's world championships just happened. And um I'm getting all these calls from people saying, Well, you know, there's all these things happening, like the debate whether Eugenoidi should be rewarded and backstage and all these questions about like you know, the debates about well, maybe we should reward it. It's interesting, it's new, but oh actually only two farms produce it. So, you know, is that really rewarding what's going on with producers? or what's the climate change thing, or like the flavor note side of it, like it, it doesn't have a lot of acidity, but actually, I guess there is a higher scoring coffee, but we want to reward something else. All those debates, you don't see any of that, right? Mm. You don't see any of it. So there's just such a lack of transparency in coffee comps that you've ended up with a lot of protectionism, effectively. Um, but I, I knew this would be the case, and I was just, I guess it's sort of, more so than I than I thought, and um, yeah, I just, you know, it's just weird. It's just weird. I just think the whole thing's. I did very well out of it. It's clearly a powerful platform, one hundred percent. But the mechanisms behind they're just so weird. And then like the this sensitivity around it is, it's like everyone knows it's weird. <laughs> it's like when it gets called out, it's like I mean, someone said, "Oh, that those eight judges who felt attacked." they didn't want to write a comment on the channel because they felt it would look like sour grapes. I'm like, well, welcome to the world of being a competitor. You know, like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's a very odd, very odd space. Um, we'll have to have a, a longer conversation about that um, next time because I, I'm very curious. I'll, I'll have to go back and revisit your the video that you put up. Um, but I, I think what you said about having the YouTube channel and, and you know, recognizing that, okay, one of the goals or one of maybe the the goals that or one of the revelations that you had from using that channel is is it's such a great medium for this this kind of feedback for you so it even if it's not getting millions of views but it's about having like two really nice dialogues that wouldn't have come up if you didn't if you didn't have a platform to share that i think that's also a really nice nice success for for having a, a channel and that's something that that I've always seen, even even with Instagram, 
you know, there's, there's times when I kind of just want to delete my Instagram. It's like, I've had enough of this stuff and this, you know, daily posting and trying to get more engagement. And, but at the end of the day, I, I value it so much as a tool for being able to, to connect with people in a way that just wouldn't happen otherwise, you know, just wouldn't be able to. And then YouTube is a way to, to communicate ideas that just probably wouldn't reach those people in order to open that dialogue in the first place. Yeah. I think the, uh, some of the ones that feel most rewarding for me are like the, I mean, compare the, the opposite of the Brista championship one is a conversation that everyone feels they can be involved in, which is the flavor note one, right? Like everyone has, anyone who's ever drunk coffee has come across flavor notes, had an opinion about it. And I, I actually am pleased with that video because it got a lot of people, I think who felt like they had a lack of confidence around flavor notes to take part in a conversation about flavor notes, right? Mm, mm. But it was interesting because the roasteries would message me and they say, you've, they said that video has created big debates in our roasteries. Like, but which is awesome, right? Like the idea that you could help stimulate some of that conversation and debate in these businesses. For me, that's like a massive, a massive win. Um, so yeah, that, that, that flavor note one was, um, was the opposite of the barista one. It's a conversation everyone's having and, and then there's like the interviews, like I really like, um, you know, some of the topics like the shade grown was fast because I did the sustainability one and, uh, Mandy Cordill, um, from Columbia university reached out to me and because it was a great point, right? We always talk about sustainability in coffee and we're really talking about price most of the time, which is justifiable because of the slave and colonial history of coffee growing. But it was, there's also like a lack of conversation about what of ecologically diverse farm looks like right and the whole shade grown thing and her research that most people don't know you know what it actually means so that that was super super interesting for me and um yeah i think with a lot of these topics there's no clear answer for them right it's it's about a belief from my side a belief that having the conversation and continuing to be critical about it and keep some of these things front of mind is valuable right it's not you don't have clear answers for people um i'm not saying, hey, I, I figured this out, I'm right about this. It's for me, what I've learned in coffee in my career is having the conversation, having difficult conversations is a, is a valuable thing to do always. Yeah, I agree. Communication, open communication, let's, let's start a dialogue. That's what's going to help us to move forward as opposed to, even if we just stay in our heads, you know, that's, that keeps us in a, a little bit of a bubble or we surround ourselves with people who think the same keeps us in a little bit of a bubble echo chamber for sure the youtube channel is a is a bit of a bigger thing of what i i sort of try to do anyway like if if i know that someone might disagree with me uh or like have a strong I, I try and have that conversation and see and like i try and test and develop my own understanding of a topic by putting it out there and seeing what comes back and then youtube yeah. is like a bigger version of that right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah for sure i love that Let's wrap up with a little bit of your, well, as you mentioned earlier, one of your other hobbies, lifting. Mm, I don't know how else to, how to frame this as a label, exercise, athletics. Um, if anyone who watches you on Instagram, they will know that you like to lift uh, big rocks, big boulders, but also uh, other weights. And, and I'd love to hear more about that. How'd you get into it? And maybe how, how, you know, it translates to some of the other things that you do in your day-to-day -day life. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I, love, I love it. So, um, well, it's funny because it's sort of, um, 
you know, I was all in on coffee and coffee is my career and my hobby. And, you know, I, I love it, but it's to have something that's an outlet for both, uh, your competitiveness, but also your curiosity, your sort of goals, goals oriented that isn't attached to business is, is really healthy, I think. Um, but it really just came about ad hoc. So maybe one of the, you know, unhealthy things about barista comps is that my, they were, I, I don't know about mo most people, but like competitiveness is a, is a negative and a positive thing, right? So different people feel differently about competitiveness. Um, you know, the negatives are exclusivity, like winners and losers. Uh, the positivity is the process of growing and improving, right? So uh, I am very self-aware that I am a very competitive person. Uh, I've seen the good and the bad sides of competitiveness, and I try to channel the positive sides through my weightlifting. But it's also like if you're a competitive person, something like a barista comp is just going to piss you off, right? Because if you're competitive, you you basically go, okay, cool. What are the rules of the game? So let's agree the rules of the game. And then you try to improve or succeed within those, that rule set, right? So the reality about barista comps is it's highly subjective. You know, really it's the opinion of four or five judges. So um, it's going to annoy you because you're like, well, one person said the rules were this, I did this, and then they changed the rules. Anyway, I finished barista comps and... Um, I'd always gone to the gym a little bit and I, one of my regulars was a, a fitness model actually. And, uh, I went down with him and what got me into it at the beginning was it's very similar to coffee. You know, earlier we talked about that academic research, like getting better at a physical discipline is full as an industry of inconclusive research, strong opinions, academics debating, you know, the core principles of stuff. I was like, this is just like coffee. Like, you know, uh, there is some objectivity here, but there's a ton of subjectivity, a lot of false claims, a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, and I've, I've never been good at being taught by like a single teacher. I, I like to go, okay, well, that's your, you know, every curriculum or every teacher has their approach, right? So for me, from a logical point of view, I would, why would I listen to one way to do something? I'd go and find, seek out who are the best teachers, what are their different theories, understand it all and, and decide how I feel about it. So I was getting into it as a, as a, as a, as a discipline to try and improve at and understand and learn about and get better. I just, I like learning things as well. Right. Um, and then I was quite good at the, the big lifts. And I remember seeing this person, you know, that's the aspirational thing. There's a famous thing that if you go to a gym where the person the strongest person there lifts 150, you'll lift 151. But if you go to someone, so who you're around impacts your ambitions and your idea of what's possible, right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, I saw this, he, this dude lifted 300 kilos off the floor and I was talking to him about competition <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's incredible. How do you even do that? And I never thought I could get there, right? So... Yeah, the, the easy thing about when you start one of these sports is very common in like powerlifting. The early bit's great. You start it, you you get better at the technique, you learn to use your muscles better, and you get loads of growth. You 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 lift heavier, you like you have PBs every month, whatever. And but then it gets hard, then it slows down, and that same approach, your body's adapted, doesn't work anymore, and you have to think differently about how you're going to improve. You have to become a little bit longer term. Uh, anyway, I start, I saw that, and I. 
I started to focus specifically on that discipline. And then some of the people, you meet people through what you do, right? Just like coffee. You find like-minded coffee people, you find like-minded strength sports people. And there was Adette. She's a champion powerlifter and a chap, Jesse. And there's different competitions. There's funner ones and there's less fun ones. And um, they were like, you should take part in a competition. And there's there's a lot of pros to like having a, a bit like people who sign up for a marathon, right? Yeah. You have a date in the diary to aim for and you get better towards that and it's motivational and I, I competed for a couple of years I got silver in the British championships for powerlifting in there's different federations um but now I think it's funny I the competitions were good at the beginning now I'm just more interested in the process and personal development yeah like when I competed I was telling some of the other competitors about barista cons and they were like, oh, that sounds awful. Sounds like bodybuilding comps. Because in bodybuilding, right, like there's a lot of controversy. Like, has that person really got nicer biceps than that person? It's interpretive, right? Yeah. In powerlifting, it's like, did you lift more or did you not? Number. Really, yeah. Like, I can hand on heart say, because I remember when I was on the barista comps, people would say to me, oh, you know, Maxwell, you would only be happy if you won. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm genuinely angry about the process for all the competitors. You know, and it is about self-development. And for me, it's about me getting better, a better version of myself in that sport, right? And then if someone else lifts 30 kilos more, I'm genuinely happy for them. Yeah. I'm yeah, not, yeah. you know, I'm not sat there resentful about the result. Exactly. Because it's all, it's all on you. And like, it's whether you lifted it or you didn't. Right. Um, and you can go back to the drawing board or whatever. And Anyway, so I liked the competitions. Um, they were good. And now I'm just really interested in the process. And uh, the thing is, you build a foundation. What's interesting about strength sports, you can do more. So you probably shouldn't go and do strongman-style training straight off the bat. You'll get an injury. Mm-hmm. So you build like a base of training. And I don't know why I've been drawn to the stone lifting. I mean, I've seen all these amazing um, documentaries. Like, there's a lot of history there. Uh all over Europe and uh, Iceland and the UK, Scotland especially. And so I was, I was, someone said something to me the other day where my some of my team, they were laughing about how weird it is that I lift rocks, right? And then someone else said, well, isn't it just like um, river swimming or like open water swimming? Like if you're into swimming, then the natural version of it is doing it in the natural world, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah stone lifting is like the natural version of lifting, right? Yeah. And um, there's other really nice things about it, right? Like going to find a stone is as nice as lifting the stone. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like going, you know, like I'm planning some trips next year to go to Iceland and Scotland. And they're, you know, they're out in these incredible environments. And you see all that environment too. There's that history there, like the Dinny stones in Scotland only 150 people have ever lifted them. You have to tell, it's right next to this lady's house and you tell her that you're coming, you book a slot, they have like a judge and if you do it, your name goes in the book. Um, and then, uh, yeah, there's just all these different traditions. I mean, they come from pretty brutal backgrounds, right? Like, you know, the Icelandic fishing ones were like, if you could lift the stone, you got a full share of the haul from the fishing boat, right? So, um, and you've got like, you know, the tests of strength ones historically to do things and some of them. Yeah, but I just, 
I don't know. There's something about it that's great. And it's uh, completely different to coffee, but also weirdly, there's some similarities, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love being able to find parallels in some of your hobbies or activities or interests. But I think what you said at the very beginning is it's so healthy, especially if you're working in it as a career. And clearly, most people working in coffee are passionate about it to one degree or another, whether they're jaded uh, by by now or, you know, still fresh in it. But being able to find an outlet that allows, well, this is really allows you to express and maybe let off some steam as well. Um, I think that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, so people are different, right? Like some people's idea of um, clearing their mind would be like chilling out somewhere. Mine wouldn't be like the best way for me to clear my mind is something like exercise. And that's that meditative approach and, and you can reflect on things. But I think the other thing as well is like, I think strength has a, like at least in a lot of modern societies, it has like a bad rap. Like, mm. you know, I think there's lots of problems. It depends, right, where you're coming at it from. But I, I agree with some of the, you know, these sort of influential strength people on social media and stuff that, you know, everyone benefits by being a bit stronger, right? Like you feel better about yourself. Um, you, you know, you. it's just, I just think it's positive. It's a positive thing. And I actually recently I was getting a bit frustrated with, um, you know, I, I mean, I appreciate when I, I when my particular niche now is there's coffee and there's lifting. And it seems where my most successful Instagram niche is putting the two together yeah. and lifting coffee stuff. <laughs> but I also realized that if you're watching that and you're like, you know, from an eight, from a health and safety point of view, you know, if you had a roastery, you wouldn't want your staff to lift the sacks the way I lift them, right? So there's like a disclaimer there, which is like, I am tr I've done a lot of training to lift things. Right. You know, but the back problems and the sort of like people's idea of like the downsides of lifting, um, I think, you know, it's like a lot of stuff in life, like diet, right? Like extremes. Of course, you see an extreme bodybuilder or someone who did something stu stupid without training and broke their back. Yeah. Uh, or something like that. But you know, it's really good for you. It's just um, everyone I know who started doing it has all changed their mind about it, right? Like this, the stigma of, oh, I'm going to get like, you know, I'm going to look like, I'm going to be like a gym monkey or look big or whatever. Like there's a new, I think there's a new wave of fitness. So that, that old yeah. school of like, you know, the, the stereotype of muscle bound bodybuilders and stuff. There's a whole new wave of like, you know, pushing yourself from a fitness point of view, from a lifestyle point of view. I mean, obviously there's the cult of CrossFit and everything. Uh, which has done that too, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just, um, I love it. Like, uh, I'm so, so happy. I sort of got into it and, uh, I, I do plan on making a, um, a coffee games, strength games. Okay. Where, and, I, and I was trying to think whether I should do it as teams or, um, we should do it as like a satellite thing around the world. But, but yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. It's the, 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 the coming together with people thing again, similar to coffee, right? Like, um, you know, like I know CrossFit can be a bit off-putting because it's quite cult-like. But um, it's also amazing to sort of do things with other groups of people and push each other. Yeah, I, I think that's that's great. Whenever you do this uh, coffee games, let me know. I'll see if I can get together a, a few people here in Barcelona. I don't know what it would entail, but it sounds sounds very interesting. Yeah, my plan was just to find things that most people would have in either coffee roasteries or shops and create some basic... Uh, 
tasks and then people could do them as a team and it would um that'd be it you know and just put all the race of money put it to a good cause who can lift the espresso machine over there <laughs> their head yeah well or that is people. i was thinking about it though because there's gonna have to be like disclaimers for yeah <laughs> for health but also like if i'm sponsoring that as the machine manufacturer like uh, you know it's gonna get damaged right so um, i'm gonna figure it out but it's, it's cool like a lot of roasters uh roasteries are doing this anyway right like everyone uh, talks about how hard the 70 kilo colombians are to lift because of the way they feel and everything oh <laughs> yeah they're heavy they're just they're heavy man those those colombian ones are heavy um the uh the little half sacks and the boxes and stuff yeah it's just i think it's just fun like um i like it because you know i'm obviously clearly happy to deep deep dive as you put it into like a a, a serious topic right but we have a really nice community in coffee as well. And it's sort of, I always like trying to balance the, um, those deep dives, those like, let's tackle some serious topics with some, some good times and some fun at the same time. Thank you for, for opening up with all these different things that, that you've been a part of, um, from the early stages. I loved hearing your story about going to Australia and sort of discovering, uh, or un unwrapping some coffee there, being able to bring it back, finding your home in Bath, the place that had the best economic uh, resources, the, the best the, the best demographic, the best marketing uh, capabilities. But um, yeah, thanks again for, for sharing everything. And I'm, I'm really excited to be able to share this with my audience and, and be able to, so everyone else who's, who's watching now, go on over, check out Maxwell's channel. Uh, I left it down in the description. And again, Maxwell, thank you for, for taking the time today all the way from your home in Bath, in the UK. Yeah, thanks, Brody. Great to chat. And one last thing before you hit the road, please leave this podcast a rating and hit that follow button if you enjoyed it. That really helps us out here. And to support this show further, please check out our sponsors in the description with links also to the YouTube, Instagram, and Patreon. See you out there. <laughs>